Right, you can turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 3, and it's a well-known story, it's well-known characters that we are familiar with, as strange as those names are, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, slow down for that one, because it's easy to call him Abednego. It's like those people that want to add an S to Revelation or to Barnes and Noble when there is no S. Abednego, not Abednego, but I know in saying that I'm going to mess it up and say it the way I've always said it. But those names would not be household names for the sake of them being strange names. You don't remember people that really just come and go off the pages of history and don't make an impact in some way to remember them for. And and that's really what this story shows us is that it could just be in one courageous act born out of deep-rooted conviction of what one believes that you can be remembered. It doesn't have to be as Eugene Peterson talks about our faith, long obedience in the same direction. Of course it is that, but most likely... We won't be remembered in detail the entirety of our life by our loved ones. There will probably be some summary statements and there will probably be some significant moments that people can recall about your life and say, this is where that faith that he or she proclaimed showed up. There was a lot of talk, but here's where it showed up and here's what we can remember them by. Now, in saying all that, I want to say that, of course, in the, in the book of Daniel, the star of the show, the main character, is God. He reigns. We've seen that in chapter 1, and he reveals. We saw that in chapter 2, and we'll see here today that he rescues. That's why the title of every chapter in this series will be about God. But as I said from the beginning of reading this account, according to Daniel, there's two horizon lines. One that's more near is what actually was happening in in Daniel's life, or in this chapter, his friends' lives, that we can remember their faith for. And that does help us in our humanity to have some real-life examples. For for the truths that are in the text of God, the Word of God that He's given us, it's, it's encapsulated in the people's lives we read about, in their actions and in their words. And so that's that first horizon line we look at and say, okay, what, what was Daniel doing? Or even in a bad example, what was Nebuchadnezzar doing? What is these three men that we will mention today doing? But of course, on that further horizon line, off in the distance with eyes of faith, we see what was God doing in his providence All of this time working out his plan, not just for the characters in this story, but for all of salvation history. Where does this fit in? How how is God doing something through these people for their good and for his glory? And that's what we get to look at today. So we remember these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'll probably just shorten their names for, for time's sake to Shad, Mish. And Abed, if that's okay with you. We give, we give nicknames. And by the way, these weren't even their real names. Nebuchadnezzar gave them to them. But I think it's just because we can identify with that we can remember people by a single act. And we don't know anything about them. Now, thanks to Wikipedia, we can find out more. But Steve Bartman, an innocent act in and of itself. Headphones on, game six, Cubs inadvertently or whatever you want to call it, reaches out for a foul ball like we all would and changes the trajectory of the Cubs' playoff hopes, or so we say. But that's the only thing you know this guy for. And that's a minuscule thing. But there are great acts of courage in in certain lives that I'll mention their names. You might not even know the name until I describe it and go, oh, it was that guy. You might know the name August Landmesser. Most won't. There was a picture captured from Hamburg, Germany in 1936 where there was a a launching of a new Nazi naval vessel that the Fuhrer was going to appear on and hundreds of his workers came out to salute him except for August Landmesser. Stood there, arms crossed, squinty-eyed, defiant. 
And that's all we get on this guy's life. Wasn't willing to go along with the crowd. Or maybe you know Wong Whalen, better known as Tank Man. Summer of 1989, pro-democracy rallies in Tiananmen Square. The Chinese government sending tanks and police to shoot the protesters. And the legend of Tank Man was born there with his grocery bags. Holding up the tanks because of what the deep-rooted conviction he had that what he was doing was right and what his government was doing was wrong. And so it is, we'll see in the text today. But we have to ask ourselves the question, do we admire and honor courage or standing against the crowd, not giving in to peer pressure, if you want to call it that, external pressure is maybe another way to say it, Versus your internal principles. Do we honor that just for the sake of it in and of itself? Or is it, is it the principle you stand for that is the real thing that's honorable? Is it the content of what it is you're willing to die for that really matters? Or is it that you're willing to die for it? So reverse the case of August Landmesser. And, and what if he was... In that same shipyard crowd, but it was rooting on Winston Churchill, and everybody else was applauding Churchill at that moment, and he did this. Is he still courageous? Or does the content of what you are being courageous for matter? And that's the question we ask as we look at this. What is it that these three young men are standing for that we are to admire, not just the fact that they're standing? If you catch my drift. So, as I normally do, I'll read the first few verses of this uh, chapter. It's got 30 verses, and uh, it falls nicely into three movements of action. And we'll just kind of set the table by reading the first six verses and then move ahead. Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So sets the action this morning. Help us, Father, to see the wonderful things in your word so that we can walk blamelessly before you. The first section I'll call Stand and Deliver, verses 1 to 12. And I call it that because the origins of that idiom that we maybe are familiar with, Stand and Deliver, actually come from 18th century England, where bad guys, robbers, muggers on the king's highway would hold you up and tell you to stand up, to halt where you're going and deliver over your money. And you have a similar thing happening here, but on a much more serious scale. King Nebuchadnezzar is demanding all the workers in his kingdom halt what they're doing and hand over not their money, but their worship. And that's really this opening section that starts with King Nebuchadnezzar, of whom we last left off bowing in respect, if we want to call it that, at the end of chapter 2, paying homage to Daniel and saying to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods. 
Lo and behold, in the passage of time, who knows how long, but the white space in your Bible between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 was enough time for Nebuchadnezzar to get the not-so-bright idea to make a very bright image to his own glory. We don't know if it was an image of himself or just an image, but whatever it was, it doesn't sound like a guy that's truly been changed. And to chapter 2, as I joked, hey, it looks like he might be taking some steps of faith, getting closer to, to uh, worship the one true God. But remember, this is a polytheistic society, and that just means a many-god society. And in the moment, the end of chapter 2, he was just impressed that Daniel had a connection, maybe to the God of dreams. And he was impressed by that. But what really impressed him, and that's the irony, is that he saw an image of gold and silver and bronze and then iron and iron and clay, but it, his mind apparently got stuck on that top part of the image in chapter 2, didn't it? The gold head that Daniel even said is you. You're the head of gold, verse 38 of chapter 2. Could you imagine this megalomaniac self-obsessed king, most powerful man in the known world at the time, not hearing that. And who knows if the rest of Daniel's prophecy, he was half listening. But like you people sometimes, and I've been there myself in the audience, something catches your ear and the guy keeps on talking. But you're thinking about that thing he was just saying, and it really gets you hooked. Sometimes a good thing. Sometimes a not so good thing. And our mind can go in a million directions. Who knows if that's what happened. It seems that the brilliance of Daniel's writing of the story of Israel's exile, but God's exaltation of himself in that time in Babylon, he puts these together to kind of show a contrast between here's this thing that should have really humbled this king for good, and instead he turns into making homage in an image of himself or his kingdom, but he made an improvement, didn't he? He made it of all gold, top to bottom, because remember the, the prophecy, the description of that, the interpretation of the dream was, you know, the problem with this statue, it's got feet of clay, and it's compromised, so I'll build an image all of gold, and it won't fall, and here I stand forever the great king of Babylon. Its height was 60 cubits and its breadth, six cubits. And probably in the margins of your Bible would tell you, we would say that's 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. Uh, second largest statue in the United States after the Statue of Liberty is the Lady of the Rocky Mountains. It's in Butte, Montana. Must be a wonderful place. There you go. An equivalence, 90 feet tall statue, but I wanted to bring something closer to home, so I went outside this week and took my iPhone and the measuring thing you can do on it and tried to see how high our cross was out in the patio area, and it was, it was overwhelming my phone. <laughs> so I could only get so high before the numbers just went buggy, and I did some you know eyeballing with my iPhone and uh, came out believing maybe our cross is 60 feet high, but I wanted the true test where two or three are gathered, and so I went into not the iPhone or eye test, but the Eichard test. Mark Eichard, who knows this building inside and out, and I said, Mark, what do you think the height of that cross is? And he said, 50 feet, so we've compromised and said, it's probably 55, which is two-thirds of this statue, so go out today in the shining sun of the afternoon, if it's shining, and imagine something, add a third to it, that big. Now notice in the detail, on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. We said uh, Babylon, modern-day Iraq, about 60 miles south of current-day Baghdad. Could you imagine a bright, shining summer day in a 90-foot statue all encased in gold? You'd see that from a distance, wouldn't you? On a plane. Nothing around it, you know, no metropolis like Los Angeles or New York in the skyline. You're just looking from miles and miles away and being blinded by the lights of Nebuchadnezzar's glory. Sets it up. Notice the two things just there in that first verse. He made the image 
didn't make it personally. He had some guys make it for him. And he sets it up. This is all about who? Nebuchadnezzar. All about him. Verse 2. Then he sends to gather. And Daniel goes into the details. Doesn't miss a single important person, we'll call them, in verse 2. And I won't reread them. Because all the reason he's saying all these different names of important people. One, remember Daniel was high in command, second in command. So he would know all the different important roles these people play. These are not the chapter two wise men, conjurers, magicians, astrologers. What, what Nebuchadnezzar wanted in chapter two was the wisdom of heaven. But see, now he's calling in these people because he wants the glory of heaven. He wants to show he has power. He didn't need revelation here. He wanted exaltation. And so he was going to get it by making a statue to his own glory and calling all the most important leaders in Babylon to come to the, verse 2 says, dedication of the image. And again, Daniel really is going to keep saying this, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He's, he's using a literary device of repetition to try to drill home to the reader as an apologetic to the reading world of, of Babylon and others that this guy was really all about setting something up for himself. Verse 3 just repeats it. He says, gather all these people, and all these people come. You know, interesting enough, everybody but Daniel. Where was Daniel here? We don't know. It's the only chapter that he doesn't appear in. He was second in command, so we think. So maybe he was off negotiating some deal with some other nation. Who knows? Daniel knows what goes on here, but he was not around. That'll come back into play later. So they all arrive, verse 3, they're gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar again had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All about him. So what happens next? Well, he has an announcer to tell all, not just the people there, but that phrase, oh, peoples, nations, and languages, would be kind of just like general speak, oh, ladies and gentlemen of Hickory Bible Church. You know, it's just all-encompassing. It's not just for everybody there in attendance, but this is for everyone in the world. There is something you need to know. Nebuchadnezzar's tops. And verse 5 gets into all these different instruments, how they had bagpipes back then, what a trigon is. Do your Googling as you so choose today. But it's just basically saying, because it even, again, summary language, verse five, every kind of music, it's, it's a great dedication ceremony. It has maybe the combination of, of like the opening uh, ceremonies of an Olympics, if you want to picture that. Pageantry, but not to, to give it to any glory except for one individual. This would be the Olympic ceremony that's just about the host country. And nobody else even gets to come in. And there's musicians and there's wonderful uh, displays of, wow, we are really a great nation. This may, you know, that, that's what it's about. It's got a political dimension of, hey, this is a show of power. We babble on the great. But it also has that um, self-serving religious side that Nebuchadnezzar is the one in charge of it all. Because Daniel keeps saying, he set this up. He set this up for himself. And so the command is given... End of verse 5, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And there's that political religious dimension that goes hand in hand that we've been saying in the ancient Near East. When you conquered another nation or kingdom or people, it was not just about your political power, but it was that your gods are greater than their gods. So here we have Nebuchadnezzar doing everything he can to promote his own power because perhaps in his, we talked about his insecurity as the king, the guy on top, he needs to know that everybody knows he's king. So he's going to make them bow to him. And the result, if you don't, verse 6, whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there's the consequence for those who don't do it. 
Just like the irrational behavior that came from his insecurity in chapter 2, that he was going to tear limb from limb anybody that couldn't tell him the interpretation or the contents of his dream and the interpretation out of that insecurity that leads to irrationality and anger, here he has a decree that says, and if you don't fall down and worship me, you'll immediately meet your own demise. So if you want to think about the two contrasts from chapter 2 and 3, chapter 2 is kind of you, you need to give me the wisdom of heaven or you will die. And here in chapter 3 is, you need to give me the worship of heaven or you will die. This just goes beyond him from wanting to know uh, the secrets of heaven. Uh, he, he wants the first place in it himself. And so that's what he's going to get. Um, change in the action. Kind of a zoom into the occasion. Verse 7, as soon as the peoples heard it, the people's nations, languages, everybody there bows down and worships the golden image. Almost everybody. Verse 8, at that, certain, at that time, certain Chaldeans, which we said that's a word for the people in Babylon, these certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Now, what Jews are they, is, is he talking about? Later it'll be revealed, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are the three Jews being accused for not bowing down to worship Nebuchadnezzar. And all we know about them is that they did this with a malicious spirit. Uh, we think of an accusation in this context maybe something legal. Like, hey, they're not playing by the rules. Everybody else was supposed to bow, but they're not bowing. Like tattletaling. This word means more than that. That word for maliciously accused is actually in, in the Aramaic, which is the language of this chapter. It's a word for, for um, wild animals. Uh, tearing apart with their teeth the flesh of a victim. And isn't that what nasty envy and pride do? I mean, isn't that what they do? They, they're not just out to get someone. They want to tear them to shreds. They don't want to see any vestige of this person's character left. That's what envy will do. That, that is how provoking it is. And that's really the heart of these Chaldeans. They're essentially jealous, perhaps, of the promotion of these young men from Israel. Because remember, back in chapter 1, they were the best of the best. It said they were 10 times better than everybody else. How do you think that made these Chaldeans feel? Small? Unimportant? They got the promotion. Perhaps they are serving under the leadership of Shad and, and, and Mish and Abed. We don't know, but all we know is they're out to get them. And then they make um, an accusation there in verse 12. Three, three parts of it. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. First accusation. They're ignoring you. They're treating you as if uh, you're nothing. So the first accusation is they're disrespecting you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Second accusation, they do not serve your gods. They're, they're disrespecting your gods. And then third, and, and finally, uh, and they won't worship the golden image that you set up. They're, they're disrespecting your decree or your words. So they have piled it on, haven't they? In every angle they could take, they don't respect you. They don't respect your gods. and They don't respect your decrees. That's how bad it is. So, they've put Nebuchadnezzar in, in some form uh, on the horns of a dilemma. Um, on one hand, these are the guys that he appointed. Um, in fact, notice that in verse 12. These crafty Chaldeans kind of make a backhanded accusation against him. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs of the province of Babylon. You gave these guys power. So in one hand, you know, he must have seen something in these guys and they recognized it. But is he going to let these gifted guys slide? And there's a bit of irony in that. Because um, there's a bit of irony in pluralism, isn't there? In our modern day, if you want to walk across the bridge back with me to 2022... In a pluralistic society, especially when it comes to polytheism, worship whatever gods you want to worship, right? Everybody's cool with that. Except when, if you're really devoted to one of those gods and actually believe what that god says about himself, that he requires solo worship, exclusive worship, and you try to live that out, then what happens to that pluralistic viewpoint? They're enraged. 
I mean, this should just roll right off the back of these guys in Nebuchadnezzar that, hey, we, we believe in a lot of gods. If they're just so committed to this one God, good for them. They're good workers. But no, it, it can't tolerate that there would be people out there that actually are devoted to the God that they serve exclusively. Does that ring any bells today? Have you ever felt that? That everybody's cool with all the gods until you just decide to pick one and stick with him. I remember being on set um, back in my, um, I, I was going to say like G-list actor, you know, there's A-list. Uh, I ran out of letters where I ended up, you know. So the Z-list actor, I was an extra on set. There was, um, there was uh, the, uh, the, the head actor of this movie, Scientologist, had set up an area where uh, he cared for the people and said, come on in and get, um, it was an all-night shoot, and he's, just come in and get a massage if you're feeling sore running around out there. So you go in there, and his Scientology people give you a nice back massage. So I said, this is a two-for-one. I get to uh, share the gospel with these people and get a back massage. And uh, that didn't last very long. Because as I asked questions, can you, you know, what do you guys believe? And they kind of countered with, well, really, whatever you want to believe. Um, and I said, what do you mean by that? And, well, you could be, and I, said, I think I said, can I be a Christian? I'm a Christian. Can I be a Christian Scientologist? And they said, for sure. So I, can I be like a Christian uh, Hindu Scientologist? Absolutely. And so I just kept adding more to it until I turned and said, so this doesn't mean anything. You just will believe everything. End of massage. Should have maybe waited a little bit longer. But all that being said, there's kind of an irony here that um, these guys and Nebuchadnezzar himself can get so worked up about the system that they've created in polytheism when there's just a few people that really say, we really believe in this one God above all others. And on the other hand, uh, so if he's going to stand on his principles, he's going to lose some good workers. But he will show that he's the one with power, and that's really what this has all been about all along, hasn't it been? He has to show that he has the power, and now he has to follow through with the problem that he has created, which takes us to the next section, a tyrant in a teapot. Verses 23, or 13 to 23. What's going to happen here on the horns of the dilemma? What happens with Nebuchadnezzar? Well, this is kind of predictable with what he did in the last chapter. Verse 13, in a furious rage, I just immediately goes from 0 to 10 on his scale of self-control, or lack thereof, because what? Because he's against this God? No, this isn't about their beliefs. This is about their behavior. He demands, as most megalomaniacs do, absolute obedience and submission in every single way. Right? That, that he couldn't, out of, out of the hundreds that were willing to bow, he's just been out of shape over these three that won't, even though he knows they're good dudes. Because he's given them promotions. And he's acknowledged them. At the end of chapter 1, these are some of the best of the best. But see, a guy that makes a god of himself then doesn't like when his creation, or in his own mind, his creation doesn't obey him. You know, I'm sure in our pride we can't relate, can we? I mean, to varying degrees, we are given. Highlight on the word given. Authority from God over something or someone. It's all a gift because he's the only one that has all authority. But we get delegated authority, don't we? In whatever role you play in life. And you could see that authority as borrowed and delegated and lended to you from God. Or you could understand it and lead rightly through it. And not be like this guy who would be the dad who says, clean your room, and then comes into a pretty good-looking room, but then reaches up above the cabinet where the kid can actually reach and finds dust. said, you're grounded. I said, clean your room. Right? You fill that in whatever you want to. The warning stands. We can be like Nebuchadnezzar in our overreach doesn't mean that we don't fulfill the role that we've been given 
But where does it cross that line in your life? It usually shows up in the outward expression of what? Furious rage. Our anger, our passions betray us when somebody that has been put under us doesn't do exactly what we say. And that's the problem, isn't it? It's the exactly what I said. As if that person could have read your mind and known every jot and tittle that you wanted them to abide by. You don't have to set up a 90-foot statue to be a Nebuchadnezzar. It can be in here. In fact, that's where it is. It starts there before you see it built around you in the life that you create and what you expect of the people around you. We'll revisit that next week in chapter 4, but this was just a small taste of it in action here. Furious rage, clearly not learning the lesson from chapter 2 of what happens when he goes out of control. He flies off the handle and just starts calling for people to be executed. But then see, in the um, double-minded man, James 1.8, unstable in all his ways, look at verse 14. He brings these guys in and he asks them a question. And maybe he's not filled with rage at this point. In the amount of time it took for them to get there, he cools down a little bit. Because we've said, you know, um, Nebuchadnezzar can be nice. Living in Babylon can be luxurious. Right? Look at verse 14. Hey, is it true, guys, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? I'll barter. Now, if you are ready, I'll strike up the band again. We'll give it a second shot, right? They're all here. And then you can fall down and worship the image that I've made. And then look at this lovely little phrase at the end. If you do that, it's all well and good. He's, he's relaxed at this point. Here's, here's my offer, guys. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. You were on your phones and everybody else bowed and you missed the memo. I'll give it to you. you. You probably just didn't hear the herald and notice everybody bowing at the same time. So I'll make, you can make it up to me. You know, there's that unstable man. He can be nice, but then Babylon can also be brutal. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there, there it is on display right there. You're either going to do this and, hey, everything will go back to normal. I'll forget this ever happened. Or I'm going to throw you in a furnace and you'll die. Sounds fair to me. I've got the power. But then he asks a question at the end of verse 15. That's the most important question asked in Daniel. In fact, it's the most important question asked in the Bible, and it's the most important question you can ask this morning. Who is the God who will deliver you? Who is the God that will deliver you? That's the most important question you can ask. There is only one God that can deliver us. It's Jesus Christ. So don't know how you strolled in here this morning and what worldview you have. Maybe you have picked and, and chose kind of the, the ideas that you appreciate about Christianity, but you want to mix in some other stuff. But you have to be able to answer that question staring you down right there. Who's the God who will deliver you? And there's only one that can deliver you from your sin, and it's Jesus Christ. And he offers you salvation in his name alone. He offers you forgiveness of sin. And he not only makes you an offer, but he actually says, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, if you are weighed down by your sin, and trying to live life, which is a very hard thing to do, where you've got to constantly be God, isn't it hard to hold your own world together that way? Because it's built in with a problem. You can't. At some point, you'll run into something bigger than you. Some problem, some person. And then what do you do? And Christ says, come to me and I'll take that burden, that sin burden of your own self-autonomy and self-interest and self-protection and self-worship. 
because you were never meant to carry it. Come to me and I'll give you rest. So Christ offers that to you this morning. Will you receive it? Or will you say, I, I no. He may be the God that can deliver me, but I don't want to be delivered. But he says, come. Right now to you. He offers you from the heart of a loving God, a holy God, a God that you'll stand before one day. He offers you forgiveness. Will you receive him as the true God, the true king? Your salvation only in Christ. Nebuchadnezzar has this God complex, so he asks these men the question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego known what Daniel was going to write in chapter 1, verse 2, they could have shot back, we've got the advanced copy of this story, and um, the same God that gave us into your hands is the same God that can deliver us out. But alas, they were living in the moment and they don't know what Daniel's going to write in chapter 1, verse 2. But that is the answer to the question as we, the reader, and Daniel, the brilliant writer, arranges it so. We are screaming, the God that will take them out of your hands is the one that gave them in the first place. Come to grips with your own reality, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have that power. Now, I didn't, they didn't give that answer, but they gave a pretty good one, 16 to 18, a really good one. They said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And that's not kind of a smart-alecky, um, puffed-up response. Remember, these guys have gotten to where they are because not just they're good at what they do and their skill and learning, but they're honorable in their actions. They have integrity. And, I mean, it already showed in their actions. Who do they really serve? They live for God. So that answer, translation doesn't do it justice. Uh, them saying we have no need to answer you in this matter, it, it's kind of like they're really just saying um, we, we have nothing left to say to you. We, uh, we have no defense. Our actions spoke louder than our words are right now. We already didn't bow. So they answer his first accusation in a sly way, of um, a prudent way, a wise way, when they were being accused of they pay no attention to you, um, it could sound like they're answering that by we don't need to answer you, but it's really like, uh, hey, look, we, we showed up for work today. You'll see later on, like Daniel highlights, they were in their attire. They were ready to go. We, we serve you. We're going to do our job. We just don't have an answer for this accusation that really is grounded on a difference of who we serve. So they go on to answer the second accusation. They don't serve your gods. Well, they say, answer that in verse 17. Hey, look, um, but if we're going to answer you, our God whom we serve, and there it is right in that phrase, the accusation that they don't serve your gods, Nebuchadnezzar, they hit right down the middle back to him. Um, yeah, the God whom we serve, the God that gave us into your hands, he can deliver us from, note, the burning fiery furnace. So he can do that right there and then, as in we don't even have to get in it. Or... I should say, and he can do the first thing and he will deliver us out of your hand, okay? Notice the difference because it's in the details. He is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. It's up to him. But what we're certain of is he'll deliver us out of your hand. What are they saying there? That even if you throw us in there, he's going to deliver us out of your hand. Because he put us into it. And he'll take us out of it. And that explains trials in our lives. Not in a simplistic way, but a parallel way. He can stop it beforehand, can he? He's able to. He can, he's able to not put you in the furnace. But ultimately, if you end up in there, he's going to deliver you by his own hand. God's timing is not our own. He's able in, in, in any phase of the process. It's up to him when he does it. For your good in his own glory. So they answer the second question. Yeah, we don't serve your gods. And then they, they answer the third question about worship in verse 18. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, God, that we won't serve your gods or worship the golden image 
that you set up. And I, if, they, if they did get a little jab, you know, maybe they got it in that last phrase. You know, you, the one you set up. The God that we serve that can deliver us out of your hands is much greater than the God that you set up. So what do we want to pull out of this section? Because this is kind of the heart of it. I know you think it's the action later on, but this is, this is where we live, isn't it? How do we respond? There's just two things I want you to note in their response. First, they didn't ask for more time. Why do I highlight that? Because the last chapter, the, 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 the key was, instead of panicking, Daniel prayed. And he, he got some time. King, it's not so urgent. But they don't have the time. Nor do they ask for it, do they? Why? Because their minds were already made up. Their actions had already spoken louder than their words. This wasn't something they needed to pray about, was it? They didn't need to team up and figure out what their response should be. Because when you live out of conviction of what God's word says, you're prepared for the moment when it's going to be tested. And there's no delay. There's no buying time. There's no hedging of bets. It's just, what are we called to do right now? And convictions do that. They can respond to external pressure because of the internal principles you already live your life by. That's what it comes down to. The power is already within you because of the word of God that you believe that in the time of testing, when the pressure's on, that which you say you believe and really have a conviction for will stand, won't it? It'll withstand the external pressures, be they people or some event, or whatever it is outside of your control. But they didn't ask for more time because courageous convictions have already made up their mind before the time of testing. There's a story in the um, 1800s. There was uh, a man named Stephen Gerard. He's considered the United States' first multimillionaire. He was a banker, and he was a good one at it, but he was unbelieving. And the story goes that one, sun, or one Saturday, he told his clerks that they needed to come in the next day and unload a shipment that arrived. But the next day was Sunday, and so one young man responded to him and said, Mr. Gerard, I can't work on Sunday. And Gerard replied, well then, if you can't do as I wish, we can separate. And the young man said, I know that, sir, but I, I also am take caring, taking care of my widowed mother. So I need the job. But I can't work on Sunday. Very well, said Mr. Gerard. Go to the cashier's desk and he'll settle accounts with you. So the man was fired and for three weeks the young man was in the streets looking for work. When one day another bank president in town asked Gerard to name a suitable person for a cashier of a new bank about to be started, and after reflecting for a moment, Gerard named the young man he had fired three weeks earlier. The bank president asked him, but I thought you said you fired that man. I did, said Gerard, because he wouldn't work on Sunday. And I tell you, the man that'll lose his job on account of principle is the man who you can trust with your money. It's because it's already inside, right? That, that principle's already there. That conviction's already formed. It's not deliberating. It's not waiting. It's not blinking and backing down. And you get it right here from the Word of God. Second thing to note in their response is they didn't know what would happen. There was no presumption on God's action, just confidence and that he would be there for them. He would be with them. Their faith in God for their future was evident in their present obedience. If you take anything away from today, their faith in God for their livelihood, their future, their very life was evidence, not in their words 
but in their present obedience to God's word. And that makes all the difference. There is no pragmatism in their response as we tend to think of what's the most desired outcome and maybe I can manipulate my present circumstances so I'll arrive at that desired outcome. That's not Christianity. That's compromise. So they could have said, hey, if you do this, God, you know, if, if you do this for us, God, then we will obey. And that's actually not obedience. That's called conditional obedience. If you promise to do this for us, of course we'll obey you. Or it's not coercive obedience. If I obey you, God, then you must do this as if you put him on the dock. I'm going to do it, but you better do this for me. And we don't set conditions for God and we don't try to coerce God. There's no ifs. The only if you see is the one that they said, which is, hey, if this be so, verse 17, our God is able to deliver us. And if he does not, our decision remains the same. We won't worship your gods. Well, the response then from Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. The expression of his face changed. I mean, he, just, he wants to paint the picture of how livid this guy was. Uh, this, this disobedience to his command. So he gets the furnace heated up seven times more, which just is really, 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 really hot. Uh, that would be the idiom in this language to just say, as hot as he can make it. And then, in making it as hot as he can make it, he gets his mighty men, binds these guys up. Verse 21, Daniel wants to give all the details of the clothing because when uh, we find out what happens to them, that'll matter. So they are dressed for success, big day at the job, just don't know it's going to lead them to their own demise in a furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, verse 22, the furnace was heated so much that those mighty men... His, his best of the best soldiers, they're killed throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into there. And the only time that these men bow is when they are thrown in. They fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. End of section two. Last section, 24 to 30. Out of the frying pan and into first class. Now, if you're a... Um, a, a director in the making, if, if you uh, have big dreams to go to Hollywood and, and make it in the movies behind the camera, you would, you would take note from Daniel's arrangement of this. Because at the moment they fell bound in the burning fiery furnace, you'd leave the camera there, wouldn't you? you you'd want to see, whoa, what's going to happen to these guys? But no. We get a pan into the face of Nebuchadnezzar. Last left off, it is cringing and livid and angry. And then King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, it zooms in on his face and he is astonished. This, for the movie fans in here, is called the Spielberg face. You've seen it because it's in every one of his movies. It's his signature move. It's the pan of the camera into the person where you don't see the shark but you see the person's reaction to it. You don't see the aliens on the ship yet. You see Richard Dreyfus, right? It's Elliot's face when he sees E.T. It's, it's the, the one guy in Jurassic Park when, take, you know, and then he turns the, and zooms into her face. That's the Spielberg face. That's what this moment looks like. Your attention is diverted away from the place you think it would be to just grab you in your seat and see the change in this prideful king. He goes from angry to astonished, blown away, jaw agape, and he rises up. And you'd think he'd say, what's going on with those three guys? But no, he wants to know, why do I see four guys walking around in there? He asks, didn't we throw three in? And then the lackeys, verse 24, true, O king. This is so understated. True. We did throw three in. Well, then why do I see four? And why are they walking around? I mean, just that added detail. That, I'm not saying they're playing pickleball. But they're, who knows, they're walking around. Hey, I really like what he's done with this place. 
you know, these stones, they really, you know, reflect the heat back to just give you that nice, no, who knows? But it really is laughable, this power play of the king to demolish these three and out of it comes four. I mean, he's just being shown one really simple fact. He's not the man. There's another man that is. And maybe that was God in another effort to shake him by his fancy collar. You think you're God. You just made a statue. You think you're the most powerful man on earth. You know who the most powerful man on earth is? The fourth guy in there. That you cannot explain where he came from or what he's doing in there, but he's shining like a son of the gods. He's got no answer for that. He's got no answer for it. So he comes near the door of the burning fiery furnace and declares, come out, you guys win. Servants of the most high God. He still doesn't know this God. He doesn't know him as Yahweh. He just knows this. He has moved from, okay, in his... Um, pluralistic, polytheistic worldview, he has not gone to exclusivity yet. But he can admit that this God is the most high God because why? He has power over the fire that should have demolished these men, incinerated these men. And what does it say in verse 27? The fire didn't have any power over the bodies of these men. And Daniel goes back into the details of their clothing. Nothing was singed, not their hair, not their cloaks. And... I mean, for the physical science and properties of, of, of this stuff out there, people that really like science and like those shows, how does it work? I would love a how does it work on this. There's no explanation, especially down to the detail of the smell of fire. Because you all know what you're going to smell like when you're sitting around the fire this month carving your pumpkin. And you're going to go in the house and go, got to throw it immediately in the wash. And it didn't even work the first one. Smoke just is not going to stay away from your clothes, and there's no smell of any of it. There's no sign of any of it. This is entirely an act of God that Nebuchadnezzar has no answer for, except this one in verse 28. This God, blessed be him, sent his angel, delivered his servants, who trusted in him. That's why he did it. And notice even the small amount of humbling that he is admitting next. These ones who trusted in him but set aside the king's command. You know, that just that little step he makes by what? Having to admit they disobeyed my command and this God delivered them. So I got a new command. And this is where you're like, oh man, there's the two steps forward, three steps back. Like just when you think Nebuchadnezzar is coming to faith, he wants to what? Tear people limb from limb. I mean, it's right there in your text, verse 29. I've got a new decree. Anybody? People, nation, or language, ladies and gentlemen of the world, you speak against the God of these guys, you'll be torn limb from limb. See, he's just not there yet. Because he's just, who's winning the game right now? That's my team. God still has to get inside. He's seeing stuff on the outside all around him. The revelation of the dream, the power on display in the furnace, but the change of heart that we all need to bow our knee to God, he's not there. He's still defaulting to, well, yeah, if that guy's the most powerful God, then if you speak against these people. But notice that in the obedience of these three young men, out comes greater protection. And we don't know anything about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego other than Hebrews 11.34 mentions them, alludes to them by saying they quench the power of the furnace. That's all we get them. They, they by faith quench the power of fire. Of course that's them. But they don't even get mentioned in Hebrews. They just, this is what happened. And they're off the scene of history because it's not about them as much as it's about their God. There's no able. There's the answer to the question of verse 18. There's so many reversals in this. The answer, sorry, the question in verse uh, 15. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I'll tell you who it is. There's no other God who's able to rescue or deliver in this way. And then the promotion comes. Rather than the demotion into the furnace, they get promoted to even a higher 
place. And again, a reversal of those uh, certain Chaldeans who wanted their demise, now they're being lifted up even higher. So many reversals to see here because of what? The sovereign God who can change every circumstance from it's going this way to that way. The decree to punish whoever would not bow down, now the decree to protect. The, the, the nations that need to come and gather to respect him. Notice also that, that, that change of what they're gathered for. I missed this one, but I, look back in verse 27. Daniel re- reminds us of all these important people. And then he wants you to see that word gathered together because the last time they all got together, it was what to say, uh, we need to see the power of mighty Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And now guess what? They get to gather together to what? See the mighty power of the king of Israel. It's, it's, these, it's these reversals, these flips to show that there is no competition with this God. They knew the God they served and they knew he was with them. These young men acted out of conviction because he's the same God that got them there. He's the same God that got them through the training and got them to their positions. Why would they expect at any moment that he would stop being with them? And that's the lesson for us today. That's the, that's the big takeaway. What it means for our daily life is that when we read this, we know that we are never alone and need not fear the future because in Christ, God is with you. God will always show up because he's with you already. One preacher said this, He doesn't keep you from the funeral parlor or the operating room or the empty house. But the fourth man shows up, doesn't he? That's the testimony of our lives. The fourth man shows up. That's God's part of the deal. It's our part to offer him our obedience. It's because of that confidence and courage that we have in God showing up, that we have the attitude of these three men that basically boils down to this. I'll obey even if it kills me. Is that the God-given grace grit that you have? You stand in the face of an unknown future and say, I'll obey even if it kills me. That's courageous Christianity. That's what you see in these guys. You know, in our culture today, and even into the church, there's all kind of compromisers and rationalizers and pragmatizers, but very few courageous. I was imagining a conversation that we might hear between these three guys if it was taking place, what we hear sometimes today in the church. It would have went like this. Shadrach would have said, hey, time out, Neb, I got to talk to my dudes. And he goes, you know, guys, if you think about it, um, God didn't bring us here to die. And if Nebuchadnezzar is going to get saved, um, we should bow so we can share the gospel with him later. Because if, God, if, we, if we get taken out, Nebuchadnezzar won't become a Christian. So let's just go with the flow. You know, let's become all things. And we'll, we'll even, he might get saved later. You know, and then Meshach is like, you know, that's, that's so true, so true. You know what? And, and Romans 13, 1 and 2 says that we need to submit to those in authority over us. And if he gave a decree that we have to bow... Not only do we want to see him saved, we want to obey, right? And then Abednego is like, amen to that, bro. And I'll even do you one better. We can bow, but we're not bowing in our hearts. Like, we'll just get down on the knee. And you know what? We can even pray a silent prayer. I know we don't want anybody to hear it, but a real silent prayer of salvation for Nebuchadnezzar. Ready, break. And we laugh because in some ways it's true today. We can rationalize and compromise and pragmatize all we want, but fall short of what really, in my imaginary conversation, went down. Shadrach says, guys, real quick, we don't have much time. Um, What's the word of God say? And Meshach says, you'll have no other gods before me. And Abednego goes, yeah, and um, you'll not make for yourself any idols or graven images and worship them. Ready, break. It was that easy. It was that simple. But that's what obedience does. In the face of the fire and the flame, 
It just says, what does God's word say? And if he said it, I'm going to do it. We pray that we would have that same strength to know God's word and believe it with all of our heart and obey it fully, even when it can cost our lives. Because that's the story of the saints in all the ages. Think of those martyrs under the reign of Queen Mary being put at the stake and burned in the fire. And they knew this story. They just had the trust that it wasn't going to be before when they got there. And then once they were there, the flames are starting and they're feeling them. And they can still recant. So they had to come to grips with, I guess, God is going to what? Pull us out when it's his time. And he's done it every time. And he'll do it for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for its, its strengthening power in our hearts. There's, there's nothing else that comes close to it. Because it's a living word. We sang that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have a living word that convicts us and comforts us and builds us up, never tears us down. It tells us who we really are and who we really serve. And for that, we thank you because it's all we need. It's all we need to be courageous today for your glory. And we know you'll work for our good. Amen.